I'll put the microphone in the manger. And if you hear something, that would be important. Um, <laughs> hey, if you're, if you're new, we've been preaching through the Revelation, and that means there's a lot of things that we don't understand, but I'm going to pray that you would trust, all right, Jesus, and that he would help us to preach. So, Lord God, um, we ask that uh, you would help us to hear your word. Thank you that your word is so much more than just print on a page, but it's uh, our Lord Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to see you. And we thank you that you sent your spirit so that we would. Lord God, we're asking that you would help us preach. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we are. This seems pretty gross. I can't believe my baby's going to be the son of God. What should we name him? Well, this is kind of like a barn. We could call him Barney. Yeah, maybe. Or I kind of always like Tristan. Oh, my God. You want him to get the crap beat out of him? They will crucify him with a name like that. No, no, no. What are you doing? How long you been there? Those names is no good. Look, why don't y'all just give me a list? I'll run him up to God and see if he picks one. No. No. That's the name of a champagne. No. No. Terrible. These are all just terrible. Relax, God. You want me to get y'all some wine and cheeses? Wait, what'd you just say? Jesus, you want some Jesus? You know, it's strange, but uh, a lot of people in our society don't know why Jesus got the name Jesus. The angel said to Joseph, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Not Jesus, but Jesus. Because for he will save his people from their sins. It's what we preached about last time, that the name Jesus literally means God is salvation. Remember in Philadelphia, they had little power but they had not denied his name, Jesus. And so God had placed before them an open door, a door open to their own hearts, a door open to their neighbor's hearts, a door open to God's heart, a door open to all creation. In Philadelphia, a uh, little power and an open door. In Laodicea, they have plenty of power and a closed door. I guess because they, like, don't want to open it. Revelation 3, verse 20. Behold, look, I stand at the door and knock. Literally, I have stood here and I am knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Look, I'm standing at the door knocking, Laodicea. If you open the door, I'll come in. Isn't that interesting? He wants them to open the door. Why don't they open the door? They must not want to open the door. Perhaps they're afraid to open the door. Maybe they think that he's like, you know, a thief in the night. Thieves come to take what does not belong to them. He may come like a thief, but he's not a thief. Everything belongs to him. I remember seeing that movie, A Thief in the Night, in youth group. Do anybody remember seeing that in youth group? It was kind of like the Left Behind movies, kind of designed to scare kids into accepting Jesus before the end of the youth group meeting, uh, before Jesus comes back. The idea was that you needed to accept Jesus in order to be saved from Jesus. I remember thinking, gosh, I used to like Jesus. 
I even trusted Jesus before I accepted Jesus in order to save myself from Jesus. In Laodicea, maybe they're afraid of, of Jesus. Take, take a look at this. It's a picture of Jesus knocking on the door. <laughs> Let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Something's not quite right with that picture, or at least the, the dialogue. What does it mean to open the door and let him in? From the movie, uh, that movie that I mentioned, I, I got the idea that it meant to say this special little prayer at the end of the movie, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And once you said that, once you said that little prayer, then you, you were saved. It was done. It meant that you got your ticket punched for a trip to heaven somewhere in the sky. Now, the Catholics believe that as long as you accept Jesus before you die, anyone can get into heaven. Really? Anyone? I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Yes! I don't know why they picked on, on Catholics, because that's really what uh, all American evangelical Christians believe. As long as you say the special prayer before you die, you're done, and you just, boom, get in. And so it's no wonder that folks freak out when I point out scriptures that indicate that all will be saved. They immediately think, what? What do you mean? Uh, Hitler will be saved? I don't want to sit at the great banquet next to Hitler. See, they assume that Hitler will be just the same <laughs> because they assume that they will be just the same. They forget that Jesus came to save us from our sins, which is the very thing that most folks consider themselves to be. They think salvation is simply a ticket for themselves and their ego, a ticket for themselves to take themselves to someplace else. Listen to Paul in Romans 13. Listen really closely to this. The time has come for you to wake up, to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us. Did you hear how he said that? If it's nearer to us, Paul's talking like it's not, it's not at us or, or with him at that. This is St. Paul. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe. The moment that we first believe is the moment we first realize that salvation is coming for us. But we all got our ticket punched on a cross where the lamb was slaughtered, which the Revelation says was from the foundation of the world. Salvation happened at the cross, and now it's coming for us. Jesus is knocking. But what's wrong with this picture? Or I should say the way that we understand this picture. Well, what's, gonna, what's Jesus going to do to them? What's he going to do to them if they don't let him in? We assume that he's going to cast them into hell, right? And that's problematic because you can't really, that, there's not an equivalent in, in the Bible for what we mean by that English word hell. In, 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 the word most often translated hell in the King James Bible is the Hebrew word sheol, which then gets translated as Hades in the Greek in the New Testament, which is the realm of the dead who are cut off from life and Jesus is the life. In Scripture, Hades begins here on the surface of the earth, and it continues after your body dies. 
if you don't open the door and let the life in. So in this picture, where is Hades? Or or, or that is what most people think of as hell. Well, where is the life? There's only one the life, Jesus. Where is the way in the picture? And where is the land of the lost? Where is the truth? And where is the prison of of lies? Where's the life and where's the realm of the dead? Where is salvation and where is not salvation? Where is the kingdom of heaven and where is that other place? If Jesus is on the outside of the door and they're on the inside of the door, how could he be threatening them with hell? They're already in hell. And they won't open the door. Why won't they open the door? He says, look, I stand at the door. If you have like a people in your door and you see someone standing at the door and you don't open the door, isn't it because you don't trust the person on the other side of the door? The guy says he's the mailman, but you kind of suspect that he's like maybe a thief in the night. He says he's salvation, but you suspect that maybe he's also like just the opposite of salvation. You know, they called him Savior in Laodicea, and yet they didn't open the door. They, or they, at least they weren't opening the door, because Jesus is saying, please open the door. They, they weren't open. Maybe they said God is salvation. They said that in Laodicea, but they were afraid that he was also just the opposite of salvation. Uh, Maybe they confess God is good, but they suspected somewhere deep in their heart that God is also very not good. Uh, Maybe they didn't trust him. We would like to think that opening the door is something that we could simply decide to do. You know, like going through some ritual or obeying some law or saying a little prayer at the back of a, a pamphlet, but opening the door is trust. And trust is faith. And faith is so much more than simply mumbling some words after you've read a tract. Faith cannot be reduced to steps or laws or programs. And so the gospel is communicated in pictures and stories and to be incarnated in human flesh. Faith is what you believe in the depths of your being about the man that you see on the other side of the door that you suspect is on the other side of the door. Faith is trusting God's integrity that God is one and God is good and God is salvation, Yeshua. Faith is wanting to open the door because you trust the man on the other side. You cannot be saved without faith. In and through Yeshua, God is salvation, Jesus. Opening the door is faith. Maybe they're afraid to open the door. Several years ago, Time read in this cover story on fear. In big, bold letters on the title page, it had the biblical injunction, Fear not! And then under it, this sentence. How science is offering new hope for treating all our fears. In the margins, it listed all these these fears, like electrophobia, for instance. You know what that is? The fear of chickens. The fear of chickens. Uh, Homiliophobia. 
you know what that is? Fear of homilies. You know what homilies are? Sermons. You might have that right, right now. Well, anyway, scientists have therapies to help you believe that chickens don't need to be feared. And they have powerful medications to help you not stress over, over sermons. But then the article listed fears like this. Zeusphobia, fear of God. Starophobia, which is the fear of Jesus on the cross. And thanatophobia, which is the, the fear of death. You see, I don't think science can take away those fears. At best... Science can just help you hide from those fears so you don't hear them knocking. Medication can numb you to those fears, just like a couple pints of beer can numb you to those fears. It can make you comfortably numb. Our whole society can make you comfortably numb. I think maybe our whole society is designed to make you comfortably numb and addicted numb neither hot nor cold, just pleasant. In Laodicea, they won't open the door because in Laodicea, it's just pleasant as hell. Well, what might Jesus do if they don't open the door? Some say that he'll stop being Jesus, that he'll no longer be God is salvation and he'll suddenly become just the opposite, God is not uh, salvation. But this threat that Jesus may no longer be Jesus really doesn't engender faith in Jesus, but a lot of public talk about Jesus while people secretly mistrust Jesus. In other words, they honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. And it doesn't make sense, does it, with, with this picture? I mean, think about the picture. How could Jesus cast folks into hell if they're already there? I mean, he, he, he can't cast you into Hades if you already have locked yourself in Hades. But what can he do? What, what could he do? Well, number one, he could just walk away for a time and leave you there for a time but not for time without end. Because Hades comes to an end in Revelation chapter 21, and that's the second thing he could do. He could destroy Hades. He could kick the door down. Or maybe he could burn it down. God is a consuming fire, and Jesus is that fire. He is love that burns away evil. He could burn the door down. I, I think that's what the Bible's talking about when it talks about Gehenna, and that would be, that would be terrifying but profoundly good. Number three, maybe this would be the very best. The very best would be if he could descend into Hades somehow. I mean, if he could find a way to sneak behind the door and convince you, romance you, whisper into your soul, I am salvation. You're already trapped by hell. So let's open the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That would be salvation. That would be heaven. Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen. That's like saying the word of reality, the word of the real thing. 
The word of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Oh, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. No wonder they don't want to open the door. That's a little freaky, right? I mean, the thought that, that he would, might vomit, the word is vomit, that he might vomit you out of his mouth. But, but even more frightening is this question. Why did he swallow us in the first place? Does he want to eat us? Does he want to drink us? Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you from my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Poor, blind, and naked. Poor. Laodicea was renowned throughout the empire for its incredible prosperity. Blind? They were known for this famous eye salve that they manufactured in Laodicea. Naked? They were also known for beautiful black woolen textiles. They were so prosperous in Laodicea that when uh, an earthquake hit the area in 60 AD and the empire offered to help, they refused, saying, we have prospered and we need nothing. The only thing anyone could really complain about in Laodicea was their drinking water. Nearby Colossae was known for its great cold uh, drinking water. Hierapolis, six miles to the north, was known for hot therapeutic mineral springs. Because they didn't have a water source in Laodicea, they built an aqueduct from uh, Hierapolis to Laodicea. But by the time that, that hot healing mineral water got to Laodicea, it was just lukewarm and distasteful. Ugh. Neither hot Zestos in Greek, or cold, sucros in Greek. Zestos is a figurative word, like zesty, or zealous, or I am so hot for you. <laughs> sucros was also a figurative word, like I am so cold toward you, I hate you. Chilaros, lukewarm, is in the middle, and yet it's the opposite of both. In Scripture, the opposite of love is really not hate. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says that, that God hates in places, which means love hates. You can only hate things that you care about. Hate is not the opposite of love. The opposite of love is apathy, a numbness of the spirit. Apathy is not caring about anyone on the other side of your own front door. Is the thing I fear most in my marriage. You know, marriage is, is hard, and when we were first married and things got hard, my wife had this way of just shutting down. We'd fight, and then I'd knock on the, on the door by saying, are, are you okay? And she said, I'm fine, I'm, I'm just fine, which meant Peter stopped knocking on my door. I'd knock harder, and she'd just be pleasant, neither hot nor cold, just pleasant. I'm fine. I told you I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. One day, I just kept knocking. I mean, I was really, I was a jerk about it until finally, I remember she just spun around, and she said, you! And then she said a word that I'm not allowed to say in church. <laughs> I had never heard her say that word before, and she just said it about me. And I realized that she had probably secretly been saying about me for quite some time. She turned around and she said, you! 
And then she said the word. And I just stared at her, and she stared at me. It was silent for a few moments, and then all of a sudden, I just started laughing. I said, wow, now I know exactly how you feel. Thank you. And then she started laughing. And cold, uh, cold turned into to hot. We both surrendered our shame, and then we feasted on each other. <laughs> and it was a great banquet. Well, Laodicea is neither cold nor hot. They say they need nothing. We're, we're fine. In Laodicea, they say we're rich, we've prospered, need nothing, not knowing that they're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not, not knowing. They must be comfortably numb. It's pleasant as hell in Laodicea. You know, if salvation were knocking at your door, okay, now this is just, I'm not saying this is the way it is, but if, the, if, if well, salvation is knocking at your door, but the, the second part, if salvation were knocking at your door and I were evil, okay, Salvation were knocking at your door, and I were truly evil and didn't want you to answer the door. I'd try to convince you that you were already saved, and therefore did not need any more saving. <laughs> Opening the door is surrendering control, and that's a bit frightening. But if you thought, you know, that you could purchase a little salvation from me, I could keep you in bondage to me, thinking that you were in control, when in fact I was in control of you in hell, actually addicted to hell. If the king of heaven were knocking on your door and I was evil, I'd try to convince you that heaven was hell and hell was heaven. If the prince of peace were knocking on your door and I wanted to keep you from opening the door, I'd try to sell you uh, a little bit of peace right here, right now, on this side of the door. Remember that commercial? Pepsi pulled it after only a day. Uh, they pulled it after only a day or two because people were offended at the idea that Kindle, Kindle Jenner and Pepsi could bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. Uh, because people think it takes political power and religious leaders to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men to make peace. People think it's the kings of the earth who make peace. I mean, isn't it Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu? Isn't one of them uh, the, the, the prince of peace? Not Pepsi. And so, people were offended. And yet, you know, almost every commercial in our society is almost exactly like that. We could stay here all day into the night and next week looking at commercials that are all just like that. Think about it. What can you say about soda pop? Except it tastes good and it might kill you. <laughs> but that's no way to sell soda pop. 
And so companies attach their bubbly sugar water to your deepest hopes. And then try to sell those hopes back to you in a can. And it works! It works! I mean, commercials obviously work. They wouldn't spend millions of dollars making them. It, it, it works. We all try to buy peace, love, life, freedom, joy in a can. Companies do it because they want your money. But maybe something else inspires the companies to do it. Well, maybe something else inspires the kings of the earth to do it, to convince you you don't need salvation, for we are salvation. What's the real thing? Coke. What's freedom? 7-Eleven. What's infinite justice and enduring freedom? The U.S. military. What's peace? Well, that's that thing they talk about on CNN and Fox News, and then the stuff they try to sell you during the commercials in the can. And, and what's that knocking, we ask? Sounds, sounds like a heartbeat. What's, what's that knocking, we ask? I'm starting to worry a little bit about eternity. What's eternity? Eternity? You're worried about eternity? You're worried about eternity? You, you, you want some eternity? Well, here's some eternity. I was searching. Then I found you. And I will love you forever. And ever. And ever. Eternity. Calvin Klein. Fragrances for men and women. See, now that does a few things at once, doesn't it? Number one, it tells me that eternity is here. On this side of the door, where? At the mall, just down at the mall. And number two, I can purchase eternity for $19.95. And I like that. Why? Because then I'm in control of eternity. I can gain eternity as if eternity were a commodity. And number three, although I like the idea of buying eternity for 1995, I soon begin to think, I, I soon begin to think, you know, eternity is just not all it's cracked up to be. And I begin to go numb. If salvation were knocking at your door and I were evil, I think I'd try to convince you that heaven was hell, hell was heaven, and you could buy heaven for 1995, or maybe a simple little prayer in the back of a book, or maybe a lifetime of good deeds done in fear, a repressed and vague sort of fear that, that, you, that, that you would might that, then confuse with, with faith. In the next paragraph in the Revelation, a door opens in the heavens. And John sees Jesus on the throne, unwrapping the scroll of history, giving meaning to all space and time. In chapter 12, we witness Christmas and Easter, and then we meet the serpent, the dragon. He makes war on the little brothers and sisters of Jesus who happen to be us, and he does that using a beast from the sea and a beast from the land and a great harlot. The beast from the sea is like political power. Politicians invariably promise you salvation. The beast from the land, 
land usually represents Israel, is, is uh, re religious power. And by religion, I mean human programs and institutions and good works. And religion invariably promises you salvation. And the harlot, the harlot is an economy of consumption. And by that I mean just taking, not giving, just taking. She rides the beast and seduces the nations. She'll make you think that heaven is hell and hell is heaven. In chapter 18, she's judged, and a voice cries from heaven, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. For all nations, all peoples have drunk the wine of the passion of her porneia. That's buying and selling love as if love were a commodity. And the kings of the earth have committed porne with her. Verse 4 is the most terrifying of all, for Jesus cries out, Come out of her, my people. See, the church has participated in her seductions. We turn salvation into a commodity that we like control. We make salvation something small and say, smile, isn't it great to be saved? We make salvation small and cheap, something you could purchase with Sunday school attendance or a, a new member's uh, class or maybe the prayer you mumble at the back of a pamphlet. We make salvation small and then we argue. We, over, we, we argue over who has it and who doesn't have it and who has the right to sell it and for how much and to whom. Salvation is absolutely free. And you see, that's why it's so incredibly expensive. It will cost you the illusion that you could ever pay for it. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your ego. It will cost you your arrogance. It will cost you your soul, your privacy, your autonomy, that thing that you have referred to as yourself. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. The greatest danger to Christianity is, I contend, not heresies, heterodoxies, not atheists, not profane secularism, no, but the kind of orthodox which is cordial drivel Mediocrity served up sweet. Christianity does not oppose debauchery and uncontrollable passions and the like as much as it opposes this flat mediocrity, this nauseating atmosphere, this honey civil togetherness, where admittedly great crimes, wild excesses, and powerful aberrations cannot easily occur, but where God's unconditional demand has even greater difficulty in accomplishing what it requires, the majestic obedience of submission. Either all of God and all of you are nothing at all. He's called the disturbing Dane for a reason. Wilbur Reese puts it this way. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. $3, that's what I want. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, just enough to equal about a cup of warm milk and a nap in the sunshine. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to, I would like to purchase $3 of God please. Chapter 18, verse 4, Jesus Christ, come out of her, my people. Then in verse 23, he rebukes the harlot, saying, all nations, all peoples, they were seduced, they were deceived by your sorcery, your pharmakeia, your spell, your enchantment. 
that reminds me of this incredible scene in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's in the book, The Silver Chair. You, you might remember this. At one point, the children and their friend Puddlegum, who is a marsh wiggle, by the way, they find themselves in the dark underground kingdom of the evil witch, who is really the great serpent. When the witch finds them, she doesn't assault them as they expect. She enchants them. She appears lovely. She speaks melodiously, talks sweetly. Then Lewis writes this. They were being enchanted. And of course, the more enchanted you get, the more certain you feel that you are not enchanted at all. They tell the witch of the real world, but by now it's just kind of like a, a soft knocking on the wall, some, some door. They, they tell her of the overworld, the sun, of Aslan the lion, and she coos, oh, silly, silly, silly. You made up the idea of a sun from the idea of one of my lambs. You made up the idea of Aslan the great lion from one of our house cats. And so the children mumble, I, 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 I suppose the other world must be a dream. Yes, it's a dream, coos the witch. There's no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan, and now to bed, all, all to bed, and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow, but first to bed, to sleep, deep sleep, soft pillow, sleep without foolish dreams. She makes things extremely pleasant, just as they were in Laodicea, and so what are they to do? Well, this is what Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle, did. Just as the enchantment was almost complete, Lewis writes that Puddleglum did a very brave thing. In a daze, he walked over to the fire and just plunged his barefoot into the hot coals. And suddenly, he knew exactly what he was thinking. There is nothing like a good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic, writes Lewis. At the smell of burnt Marsh wiggle feet. The enchantment is broken for everyone. Their eyes are opened. Uh, the witch becomes a serpent, and they escape to Aslan, uh, to Narnia, to Aslan, the, uh, the great lion and king of Narnia. Revelation 3.17, Jesus, the lion of Judah, says, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, be zestos. You're not fully clean unless you're zestfully, that's another commercial, be zestos. <laughs> be zealous and repent. Behold, look. I stand at the door and knock. Laodicea is enchanted by the great harlot. And so Jesus counsels them, or I should say he counsels the angel of them or in them to do three things. Number one, buy from me gold refined by fire. Well, where, where are they going to find that? Uh, gold refined by fire that you may be rich. Where would they find? Well, maybe Smyrna. Remember, remember Smyrna? In Smyrna, they were wretched, pitiable, poor, but Jesus said they were rich. 
It was in Smyrna, you might remember, that Polycarp was martyred. And we read the story of how he appeared to be as gold in those fiery flames. In Smyrna, there were few illusions about this world. But they were rich in faith. First Peter teaches that we must suffer trials for our faith is more precious than gold which is refined by fire. In Smyrna, they were poor but rich, and Jesus promised them ten days of tribulation and that he knew their tribulation. See, I think Jesus is prescribing some shared tribulation for Laodicea. I don't know exactly what that means for you. Maybe it means going on the Mexico trip with Allison and Vince next year. Maybe it means praying for our sister church in the Philippines. Maybe it means visiting someone sick or in prison or in a hospital who is severely suffering. Maybe it means doing the dishes. God, let's hope not, but maybe, maybe, just maybe. Suffering. Suffering is the loss of power and control. In Philadelphia, they had little power and an open door. In Laodicea, Laodicea, they had much power, but didn't want to open the door. Tribulation makes you aware that we all need a Savior and that our Savior is love. Tribulation makes you face your fears and then watch how God conquers your fears, how love conquers your fears. God is love. It's a bit baffling to me that so much of the American church believes that we'll get raptured before great tribulation. You know, no one even knew what pre-tribulation rapture meant until 150 years ago in wealthy Great Britain and the United States of America. Ironically, some people teach that we get raptured through an open door in the very next paragraph of the Revelation before the great tribulation hits or before any tribulation hits. But it's in the very next paragraph that Laodicea is to begin to look through that open door and see how we conquer through tribulation. You see, for Laodicea, tribulation is not the problem. It's the prescription. (laughs) I discipline those whom I love. All the rapture talk in America is baffling to me, and yet not baffling to me at all when I realize that we are so very much like Laodicea. (laughs) Number one, buy from me gold refined by fire. Number two, buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Revelation 7, 9, John sees a great multitude, a great multitude that no man can number standing before the throne with palm branches in their hands. And then the voice says this, these are the ones coming out of, coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Buy from me white robes. Buy. Well, what could we buy them with? Only our shame. Only our need for help. For a helper. You know, it's that place on the body of Eve and the body of Adam that we cover in shame. It's that place on our body that reveals our need for a helper. Jesus means God is salvation or God is help. 
and Jesus is our husband. He clothes us with himself, and he is our righteousness. He completes us in the image of God. See, see, I, so I, there's a picture then. I don't know exactly what that means for you, but I expect Jesus is saying something like this. Laodicea, confess your shame. Confess your sin. How dare you say, I need nothing. Don't you see who it is that's knocking? I'm not a thief. I'm your husband. Number one, buy gold refined by fire. Number two, white garments to cover your shame. And number three, solve for your eyes so you can see. So you can see what? You can see who's knocking. See my hands. Place your finger in my side. I know, I know, I know it's terrifying, but if you see me truly, oh, you will surrender to my love. In the temple there was a door. It went to the inner sanctuary which contained the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was the very throne of God on earth, the throne of God, and yet no one could see the throne except the high priest, and then only once a year on the Day of Atonement. In other words, the door was shut. As Jesus hung on the tree, delivered up his spirit, the veil that served as the door, it ripped from the top to the bottom, and God got out. Or maybe God got in to you. That was God's temple, and you also are God's temple. And in your heart, there's a door. I think it's all one door. Revelation 3.20, behold, look, 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 see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. At the start I asked, what will he do to those people if they don't open the door? What will he do if they don't open the door? Number one, he could just stop knocking for a time. Number two, he could kick the door down. And number three, maybe he could sneak inside and convince them, convince you to, to open the door. And so he emptied himself, took the form of a slave. We wrapped him in swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. He grew among us, and then he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. It happened. It happened just outside the gates of Jerusalem. He delivered up his spirit just outside the walls of Jerusalem, and then his spirit descended within the walls of Jerusalem. It's his spirit that testifies to his glory, which is his love, his spirit that whispers in your heart, just look at how he loves you. Let's open the door. And you see, that's the new Jerusalem coming down. Even now, though the door may be shut, something's getting through. It's his word. 
It's his spirit that gives you ears to hear and eyes to see. He says, to him who conquers, I, I, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That means you will share. You, on the same throne, you will share the same judgment, the same will. To him who conquers, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So how do we conquer? Well, we conquer as Jesus conquered. And how did Jesus conquer? He conquered by being conquered by love. He prayed, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And now through the open door, John sees him standing on the very throne of God. He, he conquered by being conquered by love. God is love. And what did he conquer? Well, for one, you and how will you conquer? The same way he conquered, by being conquered by him who is love, God is love. Love is the logic of the Trinity, the economy of heaven. Love is the willing sacrifice of self for another. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That's salvation. And so, what's for dinner? On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant the covenant in my blood. Pour it out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the open door. And now you may think to yourself, Peter, um, <laughs> that, that was a nice sermon, but that last part, that was unpleasant. In fact, that was terrifying. Yeah. At first it is. He invites us to eat him and drink him, to ingest him. And I think he would like to ingest you as well. As long as you wanted him to. Otherwise, he'd spit you out of his mouth. Song of Solomon 5.1, listen closely. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk by love. In other words, this is how Paul puts it. Present yourself a living sacrifice. I said it before, and I should probably say it every time that we have communion. So, so listen uh, closely. When one person loves in a world that refuses to love, it looks like a man hanging on a tree outside the closed doors of Jerusalem. But when two people love, like when one man sacrifices himself for a, a woman, and that woman sacrifices herself for the man, well, that looks like a marriage. And it might even begin to feel a little bit like a honeymoon. And when all people love one another in that way, when all people sacrifice one for another, well, that's the kingdom of God. That's salvation. Listen closely. God is salvation. I think that means salvation is God. So salvation 
Oh, salvation is not small. Salvation is not something that you could control and you could own or that you could purchase and just keep in, in your pocket. And yet, salvation is always knocking at your door. So pray with me. In fact, you can say this out loud after me if you agree with me, okay? Lord Jesus, go ahead and say that, ready, after me. Lord Jesus, please come in. Dark cup is wine, the light cup is juice, the life is in the blood. Open the door and ask him in. Lord, you have my heart. We've invited in, you into our, into our lives, our hearts, and I thank you that you take up that invitation and you have done that. And yet, Lord God, you know that there are places, there are corners, there are dark spots. And so, Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would keep romancing us to keep opening the door and letting you in and letting you in and letting you in until that great day when you are entirely in and we are absolutely filled with the fullness of God. Thank you that you are so good, Lord God. In Jesus' name, we pray. All right, well, it's Christmas week this week. So this might happen. You might be sitting at home in your living room, for instance, and it's just really pleasant there. It's just really pleasant. And you're watching TV and you, you kind of hear a knock. And, and, you, and you think to yourself, good God, it might be him. Oh my God, I, I bet it is him. I, I bet it's the Alpha and the Omega. I bet it's the real thing, the faithful one, the true one, the beginning of God's creation, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and you remember all your crap and your garbage, and, and you got a peephole in the door, and light is shining through the people. You're terrified, but, but I dare you to go up and look through the people, because this is what I think you'll see. A baby. Who's afraid of a baby? Open the door and take them in. That's Christmas. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.